Hi everyone and welcome back to the In Our Backyard podcast with your host Jen Galler. This week I spoke with Maggie and Arnie Gunderson. Maggie is the president of Fairwinds Energy Education and Arnie is a nuclear engineer and expert witness. He is also the chief engineer for Fairwinds Associates. They both previously worked in the nuclear industry when they both came to the conclusion that this is not the future they want to support or work in, and they began their research and formations of Fairwinds to inform and educate people around the world, legislative officials, and members of the press concerning the scientific and economic issues relating to the production of electricity and sources of energy used to create power. With both Maggie and Arnie, we talk about the history of nuclear, what resources we need for it, vision versus fusion, their peer-reviewed publications, and what they're currently working on. To contact and connect with them and Fairwinds Energy Education will be in the show notes below, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm with Maggie Gunderson, who is president of Fairwinds Energy Education, and Arnie Gunderson, who is a nuclear engineer and expert witness. He's also the chief engineer of Fairwinds Associate. So just getting started, thinking about the history of nuclear, how did the thought of nuclear come about and what was like the process to get where we are with it today? The concept of splitting an atom and getting more energy out, it's called fission. And and that was discovered in, in 1938. So it's like 80 years ago, it was discovered. Very rapidly after that, people realized that it would generate a lot of heat. And Albert Einstein wrote a letter to President Roosevelt saying that, you know, we can make a bomb out of this. So by 1939, physicists recognized that you could get a lot of heat and and make a bomb. By the 40s, they were um, operating nuclear reactors at the Hanford site in Washington State, and then a little bit later at Savannah River, right in um, Brettles area, to make plutonium. And that was creating a lot of heat, uh, making a plutonium. So they said, hey, we're making a lot of heat. We can uh, spin a turbine and make electricity. So the concept dates back to the 1940s. Yeah. And it's interesting now that just the two top energy sources in the U.S. now. The next question going off that, where does it come from? Like what elements are needed and then what materials do we need for it as well? Well, Before we go into that, Jen, we had a segue Mm -hmm. that, that pertains to it. We wanted to talk about the fact that we both met in the nuclear industry. Arnie was, again, a lead engineer on a project and I was in charge of public relations for that project when we met. So we were on the nuclear industry side and both of us had gotten involved in the nuclear industry because we thought it was the peaceful use of the atom and it would prevent nuclear weapons. And we we were really, really, really wrong about that. Nuclear weapons and nuclear power are intricately intertwined. Arnie and I had both been through the gas shortages of the 70s and the energy crisis then, which was huge, and the manipulation of oil uh, for sale. So we felt that it was really important that we do a peaceful energy solution, and we really believed in it. We were wrong. And as Arnie's come to find out, when you spoke about 
the history of nuclear energy and he just did, there's another layer in there. He was asked to give a presentation this past spring in April, 2021 in Austria about origins of nuclear power and nuclear regulation. That uh, seminar is up on the web and it, when everybody thinks of an atom, they have this little core with, with little circles going around it. That concept was just discovered a hundred years ago. So we always take for granted that an atom's got these little electrons spinning around it. But again, all of this stuff that, that goes into you know, nuclear power dates back to research that's a hundred years old. There's nothing new about nuclear power. It's a hundred year old technology. You know what we found? All of this, you know, the lid of secrecy was clamped on this whole concept of nuclear fission when Einstein wrote his letter to, to Roosevelt. And ever since the, the military and the industry behind it, military industrial complex, if you will, have really controlled the message on nuclear power. It's always been secret. The original Atomic Energy Commission deliberately hid health consequences of, uh, of nuclear testing and, and on and on. And so now we've got the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but it's the same people that were hiding facts from the public back in the, in the 60s and 50s and 40s. So you talk about a concept called regulatory capture. And what that means is that the regulator sides with the industry because over time the industry has captured the regulator. Well, to be captured at one time assumes that you are independent. And the Atomic Energy Commission and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission have never been independent of the nuclear industry. So we call it regulatory collusion, not regulatory capture. Yeah, that's so interesting. And when you both were in the nuclear industry, when did, did you both realize it kind of at the same time that this wasn't the future that you saw or the clean energy that you thought it was? Or did you guys kind of have different we experiences? Had, we had a difference. We had gotten, we had started dating later and, and gotten married. And I had concerns, environmental concerns, because I had followed Dr. Rosalie Bertel on impact of radiation that was leaking from nukes and, and health effects. So I had started that. So it was an issue we chose to disagree on, is a nice way to put it. And we would have discussions about it, but, but Arnie still felt that nuclear power was a bridge to the future if renewables were possible. And at that point, we lived out in the country in a house that was all solar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting. We we're in this solar house and I felt, why couldn't everything become solar and wind? And now the technology is to that point that's possible. You know, the big difference from when we started until now where we look at the industry through clear eyes for the first time, is, is that the cost of all these alternatives has plummeted dramatically and the cost of nuclear power has skyrocketed. There's never been a power plant in the United States, a nuclear plant that was not subsidized. Every nuclear plant went over budget, took too long and, and wound up with a subsidy. And that continues even today. Look at the Vogel plant, which Brettel is involved with in, in Georgia. It's double the budget and double the time that they thought. And they're still, just today, uh, announced another delay. So it's a, it's a concept that it, it may look good on paper, but it sure as heck doesn't work very well. 
Yeah. And that's a good point too, that economics, it's the most expensive energy source and just all the time and resources needed to put into it. So could you kind of explain the difference between fission and fusion and is one better than the other or just kind of the differences between those two? Well, fission is is what we're doing right here on Earth to make electricity in, in nuclear plants. And you take a uranium atom and shoot a neutron at it and it splits in half. And in splitting in half, it gives off a lot of energy. If that were all that happened, we'd be making bombs, but the nuclear plants wouldn't be making waste. But what really happens is when that uranium atom splits in half and gives off energy, it also gives off nuclear waste. This radioactive rubble left behind that's physically hot and also radioactively hot for decades and and hundreds of years. So the fission process is splitting a big atom. Fusion is what happens on the sun, which is a nice safe distance away from the earth. There's talk that fusion may finally uh, be a way of creating energy here on earth. When I was in college 55 years ago, there was talk that fusion would be right around the corner. Fusion is when you combine, you squeeze together two hydrogen atoms and it, it creates helium. That process has never been successfully implemented for power generation. It's how we make hydrogen bombs and how the sun creates its energy. But nobody's doing it now. And in the foreseeable future, nobody will be doing it. I think it's a pipe dream for men who, when they were little boys, they like to play with big toys and they want to continue to do that. They're, they're on this edge and they're not looking at what that means for the environment, for our species. They don't look at the side effects and the side effects are clear with nuclear power, nuclear weapons and fusion. There's real challenges just to even making fusion work and the heat is, is phenomenal. They can't contain it. So when you look at this, there's the organization called GRIP, Gender Radiation Impact Project. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's in North Carolina. And the women who are participating in that have done amazing science about how women and children are more susceptible to radioactivity. And you tie that with the way in our studies, we see how radiation migrates you know, on a site. You look at all that and it's, oh my gosh, why are we using this technology that was designed by slide rules back in the 20th century? It's not current anymore. So fission is not viable. You asked when we were corresponding, you said, how much can nuclear energy supply? We believe it shouldn't supply any. The climate crisis that we're in now, the climate emergency is huge. We, are, we live in Charleston, South Carolina, and Charleston was featured in a Pulitzer organization series that's going on with journalists and newspapers all across the country, and they're monitoring and doing this climate study. Use the whole East Coast, the whole West Coast, the Southern borders on oceans, and Alaska and Hawaii. And it's amazing to look at the data on Charleston. The melting polar ice caps directly impact what's happening here. When we first started visiting Charleston in in 2008, because our daughter was down here as a paramedic and most recently as a nurse, when we first came here, the whole land and the, the water levels were different. And now, 13 years later, there's huge, huge change. 
30 days a year, a full month more flooding downtown. That's wow. where our hospitals are. That's where main building businesses in Charleston are. We live as part of Charleston. So you look at that all across and how does that impact nuclear plants? Arnie can talk to you about that. It's, it's frightening. These should be shut down. Back in 2002, there was uh, nuclear power generated about 17% of the world's power, electricity. And now it generates about 9%. So it's a, it's a dying industry. But, you know, the Brettle area has the, the legacy of all of that, though. You know, we look at Savannah River, which is down in the Georgia, South Carolina border, the Savannah River nuclear site. We had a, a hurricane a couple of years ago, Florence, that hit the northern border of South Carolina, between South Carolina and North Carolina. And uh, if Florence had hit the southern border and the, the Savannah River would have flooded, flooding that nuclear site and the amount of waste that's buried in the soil would have traveled down the Savannah River directly into the port of Savannah. And that waste is nuclear weapons waste that the government is not taking care of. People in that whole community are really sick. And there's, you know, a lot of studies have shown there's phenomenal amount of radiation there. When we went up to speak uh, for a Brettle event that was hosted at, at Payne, college. When we went there to speak, one of the things that was going on is there were commercials on the television and we saw them where they said, if you've been sick after working at Savannah River, don't worry, just call this number and we'll help you. And they're not, they're not giving any severance or monies to help families, but they're, what they're doing is they're giving nursing care for the people who are sick. So the public doesn't know that there's really this horrible thing going on and it looks like they're a benevolent organization and they're anything mm -hmm. but because they have not adequately cleaned anything. And it's like the Hanford Reservation in Washington State where everything is leaking off site and moving to a major river there. So, you know, Maggie said that they should all be shut down. Climate change is adversely affecting every new. The ones along the coast here in, in South Carolina and North Carolina have dramatically increased flooding risks from when they were designed in the 1960s. And, and the ones inland, like the ones at Tennessee Valley Authority, are seeing the rivers that cool them hotter and hotter and hotter, which means they have to shut down in the middle of heat waves, which is when you need the electricity. Yeah. So clim climate change in Brettles area, you know, from, from the Tennessee Valley over to the, the coast of North Carolina and down to Savannah River, has a dramatic impact because of nuclear power. Yeah, you all said a lot there and I agree with it all. And just looking at the trends, there have been no real new nuclear sites started in the last 30 years and they're only on the decline. What you said with the climate change and the environmental impact. So nuclear claims that they have no carbon emissions, how much of that is true? And could you kind of just like elaborate on that or? Yeah, nuclear plants compared to a coal plant or a natural gas plant or an oil plant, nuclear plants emit less carbon dioxide. Compared to solar and wind, they emit more. But mm -hmm. the key is they're hiding behind this carbon dioxide uh, issue. We say it's a CO2 smoke screen, and we've got a two-minute animation up on the Fairwind site about this CO2 smoke screen. And what's, what's happening is they're saying we need to build new nukes because 
we have to reduce carbon. Compared to coal, they're correct, but compared to renewables, they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the cost, it doesn't make any sense to build a, a nuke when you can build windmills and, and solar arrays. Uh, and use that. geothermal and use wave action. It, it's just amazing. There's so many solutions now. You know, that economic terms, it, if you're going to spend a dollar on a nuclear plant, that same dollar would get you maybe four or five times the output if you spent it on wind or solar. So it makes no economic sense. Forget about meltdowns or having to store the nuclear waste for a quarter of a million years. If you take all that off of the table and just look at the dollars, nuclear plants make no economic sense. Mm-hmm. And that's, and they, there's two points missing, two parts missing. When the nuclear industry touts its reliability and it, which is not true, and all the things about how great it is and how green it is, none of that is true. They don't look at the externalities and that's the technical term. The externalities are all of the mining done beforehand and what that means to the environment and the costs of that on just the uranium mining is probably the dirtiest form of any mining on the entire planet more than fracking, more than anything. It uses so many toxic chemicals to leach the uranium out of the soil. We have worked with an indigenous organization in Canada, and they had 10 lakes destroyed in their area, 10 major lakes from all the chemicals that went in there. And on top of that, then when birds migrate and they land on the lake because they don't know, they die because they're getting exposed to all these chemicals. So that's the initial side. In the taking the uranium and turning it into fuel, the communities we've looked at that have fuel manufacturing facilities are in terrible trouble. There's waste, uh, radioactive material in their schools, in their water supplies. It's just horrible. And the NRC and the Department of Energy have really allowed, because of the desire for nuclear weapons and the same facilities manufacture for both, they have denied what's happening there and just gone on and let let these corporations run amok. And then we've tracked literally trucks and things driving through the community, tracking it on their tires, the radiation. People are sick, it's horrendous. So then you come to the operation life of the plant and, and, and we could go in ad nauseum to what all that means. And every operating nuke plant in the world leaks radiation while it's operating. So the fact that they don't is a lie. And we've done data and research on that. And then you come to the very end of life. Can you envision three or 400 years? Maybe you've done history, but can you envision thousands of years, 10,000 years? maybe 250,000 years for plutonium. Yeah. You know, can you envision having to protect that? It's impossible. How, how do you do that? Yeah, I, I think the other thing is the, the enormous subsidies along the way. I was out at the Moab site in Utah and uh, it was a uranium mine and mill and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission allowed the company to set aside $6 million for the cleanup. Well, when it went to be cleaned up, they discovered it was going to be a billion dollars to clean up. They declared bankruptcy, and you and me and the taxpayers of America are now cleaning up the Moab site. If the uranium had been properly priced, they never would have used the Moab site, but you know, like the industry was allowed to 
put very little into a fund to clean up. And, and we got stuck with the bill. And the toxicity that's there. And some of it will be impossible to clean up. I spent a lot of time in Fukushima. And the cleanup of Fukushima is going to cost about half a trillion dollars. And who's paying for that? It's not the owner of the nuclear plant. It's the, the taxpayers of Japan. When a nuke melts down, we pay all along the way. There's all these hidden subsidies. When it's generating power, the owners of the plant and the stockholders make the money. But when it breaks, we wind up carrying the cost. And you know about that with Vogel, the CWIP, the construction work in process, yeah. in progress. You know, all so many people, retired people in Georgia, have been saddled with these exorbitant electric bills because they have to pay for a nuke that they won't even be around to see if it ever even makes it to run. We think there's flaws in it, extreme flaws. That's on our site. You know, the, the whole base that it's built on is sinking. The nuclear island, as it's called, and it's sinking. So Arnie had done testimony in front of the NRC that these AP-1000s, patently unsafe and are just a hole in the ground and a major, major nuclear accident waiting to happen. Yeah. And just thinking about if we gave all of those subsidies to like solar and actual renewables, it would look very different. Yeah, so, it would yeah. be very different. Yeah. Since 1950, half of the government's research and development money has gone to nuclear power. The rest has gone to coal and gas and yes, renewables and transmission lines. But nuclear power has sucked up half of America's research budget for the last 70 years. It's, it's crazy. Imagine, like I said, we had we lived in a house that was built in the 1970s that was solar. It had passive and active solar both. And it was an amazing house to live in. And imagine if the continuation that had began in the 70s with looking at solar and wind and trying to do renewables and pushing the economy that way. Imagine if that had moved forward then where our technology would be now and how much money would have been saved if we hadn't poured it into nukes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just thinking about that. So kind of transitioning, you kind of talked about Fukushima and the research you did there. So could you talk about your recent publications about both Fukushima disaster and then the Woodsley fire and your processing for sampling and doing all of that research? First off, Fairwinds organized citizen science projects in Japan. We have one in the UK. We have several others in this country. And this one, this citizen science project at the Woolsey fire was really important. With climate change and climate crisis, more and more wildfires are occurring all over the country and all over the world. I mean, we had them this year in, in Turkey and Greece and all over Europe and here in the U.S. at places that hadn't had them before. And with that, radiation can be carried anywhere that the wind blows. So we wanted to get an idea of where, with the Woolsey fire, which was a huge fire, it began on the Santa Susana Field Lab site that was a 10 reactor test site and it had a meltdown that no one was publicly informed about in 1959. They didn't know until the seventies and someone found some papers that were released and, and began to look into that. So people were kept in the dark. The site is 35 miles northeast from LA and now LA has grown so much since 
the 50s that the whole area, there were more than a million people lived near the Santa Susana site. It is leaking radioactivity. They've claimed that it isn't. It's shut down. It's no longer a test site. Ironically, they had pulled out all their fire equipment six months before the fire occurred. They were supposed to have the entire site clean by 2017, and they didn't. They were contracted to do that, and that's the Department of Energy, Boeing, and Boeing. So the site, we never would have had to even be called by people if they had done what they were contracted to do, which is clean their own waste off, and they didn't. So what we wanted to see is where could that spread? By using citizen science, which has been in existence for more than 2,000 years. It was used to track migrating locusts all the way back 2,000 years ago, and it's considered a bona fide science. And you have individual volunteers go out and take samples or monitor, depending what system they're looking at. In Belgium, it's used to track water and air things you know, that are going on in the city in terms of pollution. So it's all over the world it's used, and, and it's very well-respected. We set up working with PSR LA, which is Physicians for Social Responsibility, Los Angeles. We set up a system and Arnie and I and our colleague, Dr. Marco Kaltofen, who's worked with us on all of this since 2011. We uh, set up protocols for them to use and procedures so they could safely go out and just collect a small sample, we only need, you know, a teaspoonful of dust or dirt or the swipe. There's special little tape slides that we use because what we're looking at is a is the microparticles that are migrating and people sign up to work with us to follow the protocols and do these collections. And we trace with GPS where they've been and there's a chain of custody we establish, who collects it, who's there to witness that it's collected and who turns it in. And then we go through it, we create a database, and then we send those samples to the lab. And uh, it's really amazing the things that we found. Yeah, what we did in Japan is exactly what we did on Santa Susana. You know, the, the citizen collection was important, really. You know, I mean, that's where the, the people know the terrain, they know the locals, and you get much better receptivity when you're using citizens. So those those samples then came to us, and most of them were, were not very radioactive, but a bunch were. And that, that bunch that were, we sent off to a very sophisticated lab, and we took scanning electron microscope pictures of the particles, and we could link them directly back. What we found 10 miles away we could link directly back to what we found at the site boundary. They had the same photograph. So we know that the site is leaking and it's, it's been detected as far as 10 miles away, probably further, but that's where we stopped looking. So it's an earth shattering report for peer review. And one of the important things to remember about this, just because an area wasn't listed as having anything doesn't mean it's clean. What we're showing is where we found radioactive ash, soot, smoke, carrying microparticles of radioactive dirt and dust. And it's falling out in weather patterns and landing in communities. That's what we wanted to show, whether the site was leaking or not. Some people have said, oh, well, if my town didn't have any, so we're all clear. That doesn't mean it. it just means that in this particular fire or, or rainstorm that came after it or a windstorm, 
it either blew away or you didn't get it any that time. Only a small portion of the site burnt and it was the least radioactive part. There's so much radioactivity there. If another major forest fire hit there and swept through that part of the site, there's parts of California and neighboring states that would be unlivable. Yeah. Wow. That's great. And I didn't know you used citizen science for part of that. So I think that's really great to incorporate the community and let them know what's going on as well and be a part of it. We've done, we did that. We used the citizen science in Japan. We've used it a lot of places and it's the perfect science for where the world is at now in a world that is facing climate crisis that's strapped for different forms of energy and travel. It has a pandemic with many variants all over the world. People can't travel as easy. And it's very expensive to send huge crews of, of scientists out to do this work where we can work with people on the ground to help train them. And local people can go out and they know their areas and they can go and take samples and then they can send them and, and we can evaluate it. And we did not prospect. We didn't use any radiation detectors or equipment that would find samples. We just went where people hiked, where people walked, where people lived, where people asked us to come into their house and collect dust, you know, and dust, Mm -hmm. uh, good areas to look at radioactive dust are, you know, ceiling fans, because people never clean up there or behind refrigerators, or dryer vents, if someone's been exposed and clothes are dried, you know, gets in there. That's how, how we've tracked nuclear workers, you know, they're deposits of of radioactivity from workers. If they're carrying it home, it ends up in their dryer vent. So it's really interesting science that we do. You know, when you've got old releases of of radiation, let's look at Savannah River again. Who cleans behind the refrigerator? You know, you pull the refrigerator out and sample some of that dust and you'll find it's like going back in history. You can find what that plant released over time by looking at the dust behind the refrigerator. It's, it's pretty amazing what we can discover without sophisticated sampling devices, but with citizens who really understand the area. And then we used Dr. Marco Kyle Tofen designed this part. Then we used the scanning electron microscope to analyze any particles that we find initial review have higher readings. And so we send those so we can know exactly what was what did the particle consist of? What is its reading? We take a photograph of it with a scanning electron microscope and you can see what it looks like. And then you can see things that are right adjacent to the Santa Susana site, for example, or right you know, adjacent to the Fukushima site. And you can see those particles that can have come off. So in our studies, we have tracked particles. As Arnie said, it's almost 10 miles from the site the Woolsey fire site at Santa Susana, and that is where it started. And if they hadn't taken their fire equipment out, they could have stopped, you know, they could have shut down the fire and only damaged an acre, but they didn't. So by, by removing all the fire equipment, the pumps and, and fire wells, they allowed the fire to grow because of all that. And, we, and when we were at Fukushima and Arnie and Marco did samples there, and we, ha- we taught citizen scientists how to sample there, they found the Fukushima Olympic site were not safe. They were not safe for athletes. They were not safe for people because even though they were cleaned, how do you clean woods when a a windstorm or or a rainstorm or snow and snowmelt came down off the mountains? 
all that radiation that from Fukushima landed in the woods in the mountains was all carried back to places that had already been cleaned and deemed safe for the Olympics. Yeah, wow. And I'll make sure to link those two publications or peer-reviewed articles in the show notes below for any listeners who want, you know, read further on that. Because yeah, those are great. Mm -hmm. There's a specific page on our site that talks about the three peer-reviewed studies we've done with Dr. Marco Kaltofen. That the first one, General from Fukushima, and in that one you tracked radiation how far away? We found the hottest radioactive particle we found in our first report, we found 300 miles away from Fukushima. So this stuff travels on the wind for a long, long way. We didn't write a report on it, but we also found hot particles in uh, Seattle, Washington that blew across the Pacific and and would wind up in people's lungs. Wow. It's not limited to Japan. You know, it, it, it hit the West Coast of America as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I'll link those in the show notes for people who want to read further and in more detail. Yeah. My next question is just where do you see nuclear energy going forward and your hope for it as well? As I said before, we we think all the nuclear power plants should be shut down. Mm-hmm. It's not a safe technology. Fukushima proved that it was not fail safe as it's supposed to be. Every backup system failed and that that could happen at any nuclear reactor around the world. It's not safe to use them to generate electricity. They're too near communities. And as Arnie discussed, there's no long-term solution for the waste. You know, it's a dying technology. Forget about the waste, forget about the meltdowns, forget about the mining. It doesn't make economic sense. And when I'm out talking, that's the point I try to make, is that we have an alternative that's better, cheaper, and cleaner, and that's renewables. And nuclear portrays itself as, as an alternative, but it, it, it's like buying a Ferrari to go get the, the groceries compared to a Honda. It's very expensive. And so the bottom line is that the nuclear is dying and that there are less expensive alternatives. And it's, it's not safe. And it's as it's dying... They're cutting corners on safety. We see that over and over again. They've gotten ex- license extensions up north in with different plants. They were designed for 40 years, and now they've got license extensions to operate for 60 and 80 years. These plants weren't designed that way. They were designed with a slide rule in the 60s, like I said before, and they have old metal, old rubber, old electricals. They're analog. Many of them, they're analog, they're not digital. How, how do you do this? And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is approving these reactors this way. And many of them are in the breadbasket of the US and Canada. And it's just a tragedy that's waiting to happen. Yeah, definitely. And just finishing up, is there anything that we missed that you would like to discuss or talk about? Yes, we've done a lot of work looking at renewables. And I think if you want to put up links to Dr. Amory Lovin's work or Dr. Mark Jacobson at Stanford, their work and studies about renewables and the economics of renewables, what it means for secure American jobs. You know, when people talk about being patriotic in this country, well, all the nukes and parts for nukes are made overseas. You want to talk about a patriotic industry, use renewables because the equipment is made here. 
and it means many, many, many more American jobs for the installation and maintenance, and it becomes a whole system. And Arnie can explain about how the grid works differently with renewables. You know, I, I think 100 years from now, historians looking back are not going to say pro-nukes and anti-nukes. It's really about central station power, the, the nuclear plants and the big coal plants, versus distributed energy, where we've got you know thousands and millions of solar collectors spread out over a large area. It's really about large corporations versus people power. And I think what you're going to see, if we're all alive in 100 years, this would be portrayed as a, uh, the end of, of the dinosaur age. The big power plants are, are dying, and they're being replaced by thousands of smaller, newer, better renewables. That's what's at stake here now. Totally agree with all of that and have that same hope. So how can people contact or connect with you if they want to do so or have further questions? They can go on our, our site to get an idea of the work we do and, and to understand what we're talking about. It, the site is Fairwinds Energy Education, and it's Fairwinds is spelled F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S. So it's a Renaissance spelling with an E in the middle. E also stands for energy, Fairwinds Energy Education, and fairwinds.org is the site. And there's a ton of information there. There's also contact information so they can write into us or they can phone the office if they want more information. Now on the site, the work we did for Brettel is, is on the site. There's a long discussion about Vogel sinking, which was the last time I t- testified on Brettel's behalf. So there's a lot of long reads, I guess. But there's a short one too. It's a two-minute video. that It's an animation, two minutes, called Smokescreen. And if you go up on the site and just type in smoke screen or, or look for it. It's in four languages, uh, Japanese, English, French, and German. And it basically encapsulates in two minutes the argument that nuclear power is way too expensive and not safe. Thank you so much to both Maggie and Arnie for speaking with me. To read their peer-reviewed publications and learn more about the organization, And tune in next week where we'll talk about how the uranium is mined to get the end product of nuclear. Thanks everyone and have a good week.